Hello, and welcome to Nakla Radio. I'm Helen Hazelwood Isaac. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our podcast from last week on the Colombian Peace Accord, you can find that at nakla.org under the Multimedia tab. Today, I'm bringing you another podcast on the latest issue of the Nakla Report, which is titled Free Trade 2.0. Free trade has been a topic of much debate during this election cycle in the United States, with the presidential nominees of both major parties decrying free trade deals as a curse to U.S. workers. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. And now you want to... We've lost American jobs to uh, the manipulations that uh, countries, particularly in Asia, have engaged in. I think that there are still a lot of unanswered questions. I promise that's the last time you'll hear either of those voices on the podcast today. But it's important to note that a lot of voters in the states believe that free trade agreements send jobs flooding out of the U.S. and benefit countries like Mexico and China, where manufacturing is cheaper. In reality, free trade isn't exactly a boon for other countries either. In this issue of the Nakla Report, contributors examine Latin America during the current moment of a renewed effort to pass free trade agreements, one that is largely driven by policymakers in the United States who are eager to extend the reach of trade and investment. The imbalance of power in free trade agreements takes many forms, but today I'll be talking with contributor Manuel Perez Rocha about one that shows up in almost all of them, Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. In his article in the NACLA report, Manuel digs into the details of investor dispute arbitrations through which private transnational companies can sue sovereign governments when they believe that government regulations or other actions have violated their right to turn a profit. These cases are heard in the World Bank's ICSID, the International Center for Investor Dispute Settlement. The arbitrators are generally private lawyers specializing in international trade. While voters in the U.S. are beginning to talk about the way these sorts of clauses essentially violate the sovereignty of the country being sued, the fact that countries are not equally affected by this arbitration process is going little discussed. In his article, Manuel points out that countries in which extractive industries like mining, natural gas, and oil represent a big chunk of the economy tend to be the defendants in these cases more often than not. This April, the ICSID ruled that the Venezuelan government pay mining company Crystalex 1.4 billion U.S. dollars because it revoked a mining permit due to environmental concerns. In 2012, Ecuador was told to pay $2.3 billion to a U.S.-based petroleum company. In the following interview, Manuel and I explore the disproportionate effect of ISDS clauses on different countries in Latin America and how these rulings have changed regulatory efforts there. Hi, I am Manuel Perez Rocha. I am uh, an associate fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies here in Washington, D.C. I have been working on free trade agreements for about 20 years. I started working in Mexico with Mexican uh, NGOs and trade unions, concretely with the Mexican National Network on Free Trade, the REMALC, as it's known for its acronym in Spanish. And I've been particularly interested in the investment chapters or investment clauses of these free trade agreements, because in the case of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, this has been one of the most contentious chapters uh, in, in in the history of this of this agreement. No, 
Today, when we see the negotiations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and other regional free trade agreements like the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, we have to see that these negotiations are still based on the investment rules that treaties like uh, NAFTA have. It's very recurrent to say today that people are just awakening to the reality of ISDS, of these rules that give corporations uh, bigger rights, rights to sue governments and international tribunals. But in fact, we have been working on this for many, many years. In fact, in 1998, many of the same organizations that are trying to defeat the TPP today uh, came together and defeated the Multilateral Agreement on Investment, which was a sort of a big, big, large agreement between the rich countries to, to impose investment rules, uh, the investment rules of NAFTA at a multilateral level. But this was defeated by many of the same organizations that are struggling and fighting today against agreements like the TPP. So for, let's say, for 20 years, we have been fighting these these rules, these rules that um, appear here and there. We've also called it like the shell game, you know, like shell game where one has to see where the little ball is because, yeah, it pops up again and again no, in different agreements. It is defeated in the MAI in 98, and now it, it tried to be revived in the WTO in the first decade of this century. It was defeated also in the WTO, and now they're trying to impose these investment rules through the regional agreements like TPP and TTIP. So it is very important that we understand that there's a history of, of struggle against these investment rules. The central sort of focus of your article are these investment clauses, which um, essentially allow for uh, international, transnational corporations to sue governments in, uh, in a transnational court in defense of what uh, many might uh, call their, quote, right to make a profit. As far as the uh, trade agreements are concerned, as far as the global community that's a part of these trade agreements, which is a significant portion of that community, and as far as those economic players are concerned, corporations have a right to earn a profit. And right. if that right is at all compromised, it's uh, it's the responsibility of the government to pr essentially provide that profit. Right. Yes. Uh, well, we have been documenting during many, many years how these free trade agreements and also bilateral investment treaties are a part of a very large framework of impunity that keeps uh, corporations unprecedented powers uh, to be able to dispute uh, the prerogative that governments have to act as guarantors for human rights and also for defending the environment. No? Uh, these agreements guarantee investors uh, that they will have uh, the maximum profit possible uh, despite despite any efforts from governments and people to protect uh, their environment and also the right to promote local development schemes. So free trade agreements and these investment clauses allow companies to evade laws, constitutions, and local and national courts. And they give corporations uh, the green light to sue sovereign states for millions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions, before private, secretive, 
and arbitrary tribunals uh, like the one associated with the World Bank, ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes that is housed at the World Bank. But there are others, other tribunals as well, no? like the International Chamber of Commerce has one. So corporations can sue governments for, you know, direct expropriation, but for indirect expropriation, for what they consider is any measure that um, hinders or tampers with their expected future for profits. So what we have in these international agreements are a, a set of rules uh, that have been developed on a parallel track to be made applicable to the international community in its entirety without any consideration of whether there is a reciprocity, you know, like, mm-hmm. like investors cannot be sued in these tribunals. It's a one-way system that only benefits uh, investors, no? One voice uh, from the United States side that has really stuck out to me, especially this summer, as it's been uh, a a matter of much debate, uh, Jeffrey Frankel, who is a professor of uh, capital formation and growth at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, he, he essentially, his argument is that, yeah, you know, companies are allowed to uh, register claims, um, but often those claims are decided in favor of the government. Um, now, I mean, you bring up a couple cases in your article. Um, let's see, it was in 2006, Occidental Petroleum uh, yeah. won an arbitration against the Ecuadorian government to the tune of $1.8 billion, which, if I remember correctly, is the amount that the government had budgeted for their entire public health program for that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems pretty clear that, yeah, you know, even if Frankel is right, and sometimes these arbitrations are ruled in favor of the government, like in the case of uh, Panama uh, more recently this year, when the companies do win, they win to such an intense degree that it becomes unsustainable for the governments. It seems like we need to problematize not the outcome of these arbitration proceedings, but the fact that they are possible in the first place. Well, I mean, investors never lose uh, a case. They they don't risk anything taking a country to an investor, to an ISDS case. In fact, we have figures from UNCTAD that say that 26.5% of the cases have been decided in favor of the investor, 24.2% have been settled, and 36.7% have been decided in favor of the state. Another 10% have been discontinued. It would seem here that investors get what they want in a minority of cases. But in fact, when they are settled, it's because the company settled with the government and actually got what they wanted from their investment. So if we make a sum of both, those cases that are decided in favor of the investor and those cases that are settled, it turns out that companies win in 50% or more of the cases. So it's true the other cases are either dismissed or are decided in favor, and I quote, in favor, unquote, of the state. But but in these cases, the investors don't lose anything. In the last years, it's been tobacco companies, yes, who have been particularly uh, uh, unfavored by this system, 
because there's been a very strong um, work of advocacy and lobbying of anti-tobacco measures that have proven to be very successful. But this is one, this is not an example, this is just one sector, industrial industrial sector, that has been uh, unfavored. There isn't any other. In fact, in the TPP, there are certain anti-tobacco measures by which uh, tobacco companies are excluded from ISDS and the investor chapter. They cannot actually use ISDS to um, sue governments. But this this makes us think, if there's a, a positive recognition that tobacco is harmful to health, and therefore it's been excluded from the TPP. Why are there other sectors that are just as harmful to health, uh, not excluded as well? For example, poisonous, poisoning gold mining, or uh, we could put many, many examples of environmental damage that are not excluded from ISDS. The point is that everything that causes environmental damage or damage to human health should be excluded from this from this system, and, and this should have happened with the TPP, not only tobacco, but many other sectors of the economy. You know, it seems like these, this arbitration procedure, these clauses, do not affect countries equally across the board. Oh, okay. You know, Australia is able to defend itself, perhaps because of the fact that it's a tobacco and public health issue that, as you said, has a totally different reputation. Right. But, but also, I mean, extractivism and these environmental issues are much more widespread in particular countries. And so these countries find themselves fending off many more complaints than perhaps the United States or Australia or other countries do. What's more, the corporations that are suing them are from yeah. specific countries as well. Yeah. No, definitely the countries that have been more affected are countries of the global south. First of all, it's important to say that the system is not designed to have some countries win and others lose. We see that the economic impacts of free trade agreements in general are um, impact, they, they impact uh, social classes. It's not about whether Mexico has benefited more from NAFTA than the United States, like some candidates like Donald Trump want to claim it is workers in both countries that are negatively impacted by these free trade agreements because they destroy jobs. What we have to understand is that these agreements are designed for corporations and those are the winners. No, in case, in the case of investor state cases, the most frequent respondent states, respondent means the countries that have been sued are Argentina, Venezuela, the Czech Republic, Egypt, Canada, Mexico, Ecuador, India, Ukraine, Poland, and the United States. So what we see here, the United States is the last one in this list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, the eleventh. But the United States hasn't lost one single case. Mm. Which is, uh, it's is, is interesting. There are also countries, northern countries that have been very impacted, like Canada. Mm-hmm. So increasingly, increasingly, there are more countries in the north that are being sued by companies under the ISDS regime. Um, this is a, an emerging trend. And, uh, we see a lot of countries in Eastern Europe. I just mentioned the Czech Republic. 
but also that are also being sued uh, very much by extractive industries as well. Whether in the past it was mostly countries in the global south that have been impacted, there's an emerging trend uh, of northern countries also being sued by disagreements. And this is why there's such a, a strong reaction against the TTIP in particular in Europe. Because, you know, one of the most uh, emblematic cases is the, the case of Vattenfall, which is a Swedish nuclear company that sued Germany because Germany decided to to turn into green energy production and, and close down some nuclear plants and therefore was oh, it's being sued by for billions of dollars by a Swedish company. So what we're seeing, yes, it's an emerging global trend or co of corporations trying to use this system to extract millions or billions of dollars from from any any state, no? It's most frequent home states of the transnational corporations that sue government that sue governments. Right. So and these are these are the countries that the countries are housing that these corporations that are bringing yes. claims against against foreign governments. Yeah. And these are statistics from UNCTAD. They have an ISDA's database that is very interesting. And the most frequent home state, you guess which one it is. It's no wonder that's the United States. Right. Uh, the second is the Netherlands. The third is the United Kingdom. The fourth is Germany. The fifth is France. Then comes Canada, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, Turkey, Belgium, and Austria. Other than Turkey, we would say that most of the companies in the world that uh, sue governments come from the richest countries in the world. So you see a very disproportionate system there. And also another interesting statistic is where are the lawyers? Where do the lawyers or the arbitrators and conciliators, uh, members appointed by the tribunals are from? And 48% are from Western Europe. And 21% are from North America. So you see minority of arbitrators and conciliators from other regions of the world, apart from North America and the Western Europe, no? So it's a very uh, disproportionate system. I wonder also, just looking at the rhetoric of um, the United States, but also just kind of in general around this issue, I think it's interesting to sort of try and tease out... Um, well, who exactly is this bad for? And you kind of mentioned this earlier, you know, the, the TPP, like saying something is good for a country, it's too, that's too general, you know, saying, oh, the TPP is bad for the United States. Well, actually, it seems like this arbitration um, procedure is, is pretty good for private, large private corporations in the United States. As far as workers go, it seems pretty bad. And so, I mean, I think we can kind of, we can, we can, change the division lines here. And of course, right. this is all relational. I mean, yeah, something might be bad for workers in the United States. It's probably worse for workers in right. Mexico who have had their farms closed um, and have had to, you know, move to maquiladoras where they're not being paid enough. Uh, right. But it seems that overall, it's not really, it's not so much a country that's, that's, you know, getting screwed here so much as the worker, a transnational group of people and and the public, the voters, uh, right. who have very little control over what kind of terms go into these agreements, and yet who are suffering um, a lot of adverse health effects because of the way that these procedures protect uh, 
companies who who want to who want to pursue extractivism. That's right, and uh, it's very clear, for example, that now that the United States is being sued by TransCanada for fifty million dollars because Obama's uh, President Obama's decision to, uh, of not grant a permit to the Keystone Pipeline, you don't see corporations uh, blinking an eye for that. I mean, they U.S. corporations they don't care if the United States government is being sued for fifty million dollars. Right. It is the people that care because this is money that is taken. That has to be taken from uh, public budgets. And imagine in poorer countries like El Salvador being sued for $250 million or Ecuador that has just is being sued for billions of dollars. All this money, where does it come from? It comes from money that should go for to education, to health services, to, you know, all in any kind of public uh, spending that it's so, so, so needed in these countries. And right. this is where where these suits are paid from, um, and the corporations don't care about that. They, mm-hmm. they don't lose anything. You know, and, they don't and lose- on the flip side, I mean, if a, if a United States corporation wins an arbitration case against a foreign country, it doesn't do much to benefit the public of the United States. I mean, that money doesn't go into the public sphere anywhere. Of course. <clears throat> So in yeah. a lot of a lot of ways, this is a this is a clashing between public and private spheres, and the and, and the and we're kind of bumping up against the ways in which the interests of each of those groups are not always aligned. Yeah, I think you put it very well. It's a clash between the the public and the private spheres, and this is the whole neoliberal model that is being imposed today upon the world, which is destroying the public and making the public uh, spending slimmer and slimmer. Uh, despite the increasing inequality around the world, uh, not only living a capitalist system where corporations and its owners are getting richer and richer, they're also fighting to make sure that the, that the public and the, and the governments have less money to spend on, on the, on, on social needs, no? So this is the, what we're confronting today. And ISDS, it's only like, uh, the tip of an iceberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tip of an iceberg by which corporations uh, make sure by all means that the governments uh, around the world are unable to put any limit to their profit making. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what you described just then really is, I, I think, in certain terms, the chilling effect um, that you have. Yes, even more important than guaranteeing that they will have their expected profits back when, when any government uh, regulates in the detriment of their profits, is to make sure that governments are deterred from taking any regulatory action that will hinder with their operations. No, mm-hmm. So this is what's called the chilling effect. There are very few cases that demonstrate that this has happened. I mean, it's difficult to really dig into uh, cases, but we have a few ones and uh, around the world. And one of them is the uh, case that I described in the article in Guatemala, by which Guatemala was prevented from closing a very uh, destructive, environmentally destructive mine, the Marlin mine. Uh, Guatemala had already received a recommendation from the Inter-American Human Rights Commission to close it, but they didn't. And in documents that were obtained uh, by Freedom of Information Act, it was seen, it was, we could read 
that the Guatemalan government um, argued that closing down the mine could have taken them to an international tribunal. So they were closing it in order not to to be sued. And this happens everywhere, all the time. Mm-hmm. That governments that have signed on to all these bilateral investment treaties and free trade agreements know now very well that they cannot confront uh, corporations because they can be taken anytime to an international tribunal like ICSIF, no? I think it speaks to the dynamic between uh, the regulators in a country and the people of that, I mean, their, their uh, constituents. Obama is, I think, on the general scale, held more accountable uh, for his decisions by the, by, the, by the United States public than perhaps other governments making decisions like these. Well, yeah, I mean, it's in the case of Obama, it's really contradictory how he um, moved so swiftly to uh, to not allow the Keystone Pipeline due to the huge environmental pressure, the pressure from environmental organizations, and he knows very well about environmental damage, and it is really puzzling how he is pushing so hard for the Trans-Pacific Partnership mm-hmm. when he knows that it contains these these clauses that have allowed Trans-Canada to sue the United States for $15 billion. So I think it doesn't doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't make sense to many people, of why Obama is acting in such a contradictory way. With other governments, like, say, Mexico or Central American governments, Many people ask the negotiators of these agreements in those countries, why do they negotiate these clauses mm-hmm. that would later, that would later uh, make them vulnerable? And the response is that most of these people that negotiate these agreements, they don't care either about the, their country. They don't care about the, the, the health of public finances because these are people that one day they work for the government. In a few years, they can work for the companies or work for multinational institu- uh, multilateral institutions here in Washington. And they move in this revolving door of profit making, which is profit making between government officials, multilateral institutions like the World Bank or the ITP, the Inter-American Development Bank, or work in the boards of companies. Mm-hmm. It is not strange to see many government officials, even presidents, privatizing one com- one industry, for example, railroads in Mexico, just to see them when they leave office become members of the board of that privatized company. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's also, of- I mean, yeah. it's 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 worthwhile to point out that uh, you know these negotiators, regardless of their individual allegiances, the uh, the materials that they are presented with in advance of these trade negotiations are presented by private companies and uh, and. Lobbyists from particular industries. So you know the the rules of the game, or the or the the goal of these negotiators as they enter these very secretive trade negotiations. Right. Those goals are laid out not by the EPA or any kind of public health branch or the federal government, but by these industries and the lobbyists that represent them. Absolutely, we know that in the United States, it is a a, a body of six hundred companies that dictate the rules for the negotiations of return agreements to the USTR. And it is the same in Europe. What would you expect in other countries 
that are so dominated by the elite of of each country, no? Mm-hmm. That was the case with NAFTA. That was the case with TAFTA. It was the very, very uh, thin elite uh, of, well, I would say, politicians, technocrats, and companies that have dictated the rules for these agreements. They are, as I, as we have said, it is not that some countries win and some countries lose. Also, richer people and companies in countries like Mexico and Central America have been benefited by NAFTA and CAFTA. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so before we wrap up, we're, we're taking yes. this on, uh, Wednesday, September 14th, and we are anticipating a decision on a really big arbitration case, um, the Pacific Rim versus El Salvador. Yeah, it was, let's see, in 2004, they applied to dig for gold. El Salvador said no. In 2008, the Salvadoran government instituted a moratorium. One year after the ban went into effect, in 2009, they filed a 77 million US dollar lawsuit. Yeah, and then, but it's, it's kind of transformed over time. So they're using this outdated investment oh, yeah. law, um, right. as justification for what is now a 250 million US dollar lawsuit. Um, so, um, since we're here right now, maybe we can talk a little bit about what makes this case, uh, particular, why we're looking to it, uh, to kind of see what the, what the future of these, of these arbitrations, uh, is going to be, um, and what the, uh, the fallout will be, uh, depending on, on which way the case is decided. Yes. Well, this, this case has been particularly important and it's so important that it has, it has been dragging for, Almost for more than seven years now. Uh, seven years is much more than the average for these cases to be ruled. The average is between two and three years. And the fact that it's been dragging so much, it is, I, with, we believe it is because there is particular attention to the result of this case, international attention to the result of this case. Why? Well, because this is a particularly egregious case and it could, set a precedent for many mining companies around the world, increase their um, their suits against governments. Um, and this is particularly also egregious because it's against a small country like El Salvador uh, and, and its people, the people who took the decision to halt coal mining and, and, and by which the government responsibly um, reacted denying permits to coal companies and establishing a de facto moratorium on metallic mining. So we have here a case of uh, Sansom and Goliath, right? Uh, it's very small company, sorry, very small country confronting the superpowers of the mining companies, the mining industry, and also the exit and the whole investor state dispute settlement system. We are seeing here with this case a clash between local struggle for environment and democratic decisions taken by small by small countries' governments with the powers of globalization and large industries, uh, capitalism and destructive industries, with the support of the World Bank institutions like the ICSID. So I think this is why it's such an important case. Uh, you're seeing the, the the very contrast 
between what we hope for, which is people taking care of the planet, people taking care of the environment, governments responding to those local demands on one hand, and the power of these institutions uh, exerting every every everything they can, like using this ISDS mechanism against um, local democratic decisions, no locally democratic made decisions. Seventy nine point five percent of Salvadorans, according to a recent poll by the University of Central America, are uh, against any gold mining in their country. Um, so this, you know, we were talking about the accountability of, of uh, President Barack Obama when he uh, nixed the Keystone pipeline amidst a lot of public agitation and pressure. Um, you know, these governments, there's a chilling effect, but there's also uh, increasingly public social actions um, intending to, to, to pressure governments into making the, the right choices in these cases. So they're kind of stuck, uh, you know, between a rock and a hard place. The El Salvadoran government hasn't quite been uh, defending the right of these companies to sue the way that the Obama administration has. Um, but it is worth kind of noting that this is an issue that is increasingly part of the public discourse. Um, and people have very strong opinions, particularly when it comes to environmental damage and threats to public health. Well, it is, yes, because it's the, people are realizing that any struggle and the outcome of any struggle is liable to be challenged by these corporations under the ISDS regime, under the invest, investor state dispute settlement regime. Right. So and we have see, a situation where, you know, people are not only worried about pressuring their governments to make the right decision, but they're worried about the fact that once that decision is made, it may not actually have that much uh, staying power. That's right. It can have uh, a dual effect. No, the co- the government might have to end up paying money. That's money for, as we have said, for public spending, and lose millions or billions of dollars. Or the government go and settle the case. And the settle the case is reversing the decision made in favor of the public interest of, of the environment. So many struggles, like in Guatemala, like in the Merlin mine, like in El Salvador, might be actually reversed if the governments go and settle the case with the company under the pressure of the of the suit. So this is for example with with in many in many countries civil society also have to has to be very attentive that the government doesn't back down from a decision taken, even when it has been taken to to an international court, no? I wonder at what point do, you know, what happens when we get to a point where a country literally does not have the money to pay these, to pay these companies? These, these procedures and the, uh, the kind of clauses that lay out their mechanisms are, uh, a threat to sovereign self-determination, are they perhaps also uh, kind of dependent on people agreeing to play by the rules? Because um, it seems, I, was it Ecuador that has decided to since go back and and re-examine every single FTA it's a part of um, and kind of just say, hey, I know that we signed this, but we're not doing that anymore? Well, unfortunately, that's not possible because the the system is so strong 
that any country that decides unilaterally to not to pay, uh, there are very strong enforcement mechanisms to make countries pay. In fact, Ecuador, I understand it has already paid paid 740 million, I think, to Oxy Petroleum. It still owns something around 200 million and it will pay them. Sometimes companies say, okay, I can wait a little bit, but you will end up paying uh, with the interests. So in the end, countries become more indebted. They just become indebted if they don't have the money to pay right, right away. Uh, in the case of Argentina, Argentina first said that they wouldn't pay for those, uh, suits under the, the, the national debt restructuring. And they ended up paying even really? before the change of government to the neoliberal government of Macri, who would definitely pay. Mm -hmm. Even under the last regime, they ended up paying because there are enforcement mechanisms to make sure that governments pay. Remember that ICSID is a, no, a World Bank uh, institution. So if you, in the case of Argentina, for example, the Obama administration itself warned Argentina that if they didn't pay it, they would recommend the World Bank and IMF to cut loans. You also lose, a country can also lose its investment um, status. Uh, you know that Modi's and Standard and Poor's and all are, are institutions that um, qualify the, the investment grade of one country. And the investment grade is super important. If you lose your investment grade or you got it diminished by these institutions, then investment stop flowing to your country. So if you just say like, I'm not going to pay because I don't have money or I don't think it's fair in the investment circles, you become something like a rock nation mm -hmm. and no the world wants to do, wants to become such everyone, almost every country in the world is, is trying to promote this image that is open for business and that it respects uh, investments and also that it abides by the rules. Unfortunately, these are the rules. This, this is why it's so, per, so, such an error to sign on these investment agreements and these free trade agreements. And this is why we have fought so much and tried to convince governments, um, sometimes, uh, sometimes without success that they shouldn't be signing this onto these agreements because there will be consequences uh, of, and it's not so easy to to back off, no? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, despite of what I said, there is a growing backlash against this system. And there are countries that are looking for ways to exit this system. And we've had Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela uh, withdrawing from the exit convention and looking for ways to terminate the bilateral investment treaties. Uh, also, to, you can terminate your bilateral investment treaties, but then you have like a period, which is called the exit period, to actually have them cancelled. And there are other countries in the world, like South Africa, like Indonesia, etc., that are looking for ways to change their investment regime, their model investment regime, in order to make it less susceptible to to ISDS and international tribunals to really make sure that companies have to abide by your own rules and pass through national courts before taking to international remedies. So there is hope. It's very difficult, but there is a growing recognition and a growing conscience that this system is so pernicious that we have to make a 
very, very strong effort to, to start dismantling it. That was Manuel Perez Rocha. We're anticipating the verdict of the Pacific Rim El Salvador case, so be sure to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash NACLA and on Twitter at NACLA for updates on that, the next podcast, and more news from the region. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our web editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is from Radio Jarocho.